I've thought about this for since 2015 when I started buying Bitcoin that, you know, my, my view is I want to be able to go to bed at night, put my head against the pillow and be prepared for to wake up tomorrow and Bitcoin to be $500,000 and not and, and it'll be great. It'll be wonderful. You know, uh, hopefully that's a good place. The world's in as well. Or I want to be able to go to bed and wake up tomorrow and Bitcoin to be $5,000 and I'm not going to want to jump off a building. Either one, I'm prepared for the eventuality. But this is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Thanks for joining us for this illuminating discussion about the bond market. This is a topic that is seemingly infinitely complex the more layers we peel back. If you're new to the topic, we cannot stress enough how necessary a basic understanding of credit markets is to assist with understanding markets in general. Joe and Greg have some disagreements, and they've aired about on Twitter, and they've both graciously agreed to join us to talk about them. Joe and Greg are some of the best to learn credit markets from. Greg was a high-yield bond trader for 30 years, and Joe has clearly spent thousands of hours to understand these markets. They have differing views, and we have a lot to learn from each of their perspectives. If you take the time to listen and truly digest the content that lays before you over the next hour and a half, I promise you will be better informed about the economy, credit markets, Bitcoin, and the harrowing transition we appear to be in economically. Whether you have no idea what a bond contract is, or you're buried deep in financial markets on a daily basis, we promise you will glean signal out of this discussion. If this is your first time listening to us, we are but a couple humble firefighters. Our goal is to learn about financial markets and Bitcoin along with our audience. We want to take complex and jargon-filled topics and make them digestible for people who haven't spent the better part of their life studying markets. We hope you enjoy the discussion. When you are thinking adversarially about your cold storage setup, you should be thinking about acquiring the most secure Bitcoin signing device in existence the cold card Mark IV. The Mark IV has emerged out of the primordial ooze of Bitcoin signing devices and has quickly evolved to slay all of its competition in the space. It has slain lesser devices to become the apex predator of cold storage. Don't trust your Bitcoin to a device that still supports the amoebas and bacteria, the lower life forms that are the scum on the surface of a festering pond. If your signing device supports anything other than the pristine collateral that is Bitcoin, it is not fit to secure generational wealth. The Cold Card Mark IV is our choice for cold storage, and we highly recommend you use one as well. Ditch the Paleolithic era and join us in the 21st century with cold stored Bitcoin on a Mark IV. Use code BCB for 5% off. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Joe and Greg, welcome back on BCB, gentlemen. Pleasure to have both of you. Hi, Dan. Hi, Josh. Hi, Greg. Joe, great to be here, fellas. Thank you very much for having us. Gentlemen, oh yeah, we really appreciate you both giving us the opportunity to talk about this. These, uh, you know, as we talked just a second ago, these are some of the most difficult concepts for people to wrap their head around. Everything about bonds is just kind of in a backwards, upside down world. And 
everybody kind of gets confused by it. So I hope we can draw out some of that confusion and, and put it down in the base level and get it better understood by most people. I think these, these kinds of disagreements anyway, like we are, we're trying to water some kind of tree of knowledge here, not continuously adding piles of shitty affirmation bullshit on everybody. One of the things that we appreciate about the two of you guys and is this, this disagreement in general. Everyone wants to nod their heads and lick boots. That's not how Bitcoin was instantiated. Satoshi wouldn't have been licking anyone's boots. You know, We're, uh, we're looking for this descent to turn into something uh, beneficial for everybody here. If we don't see the nut shots, they didn't happen. And a couple of logistics as well. Uh, a rage quit by any party involved here is an automatic KO. Just automatic. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, personal insults or harassment. That's a point to your opponent. So let's not do that, gentlemen. <laughs> um, we will try. I think the keyword is try to stay out of the way in this one. Uh, Josh and I uh, have loud mouths and strong opinions. We'll try to kind of hold those at bay. I think we'll, we'll chime in for two key reasons. One being if we're way into the weeds on something, we want to bring it back to the surface, we might hop in. And then if we... If our pea-sized brains need some clarification or summarization uh, or education, we may ask for it just to make this somewhat relatable. I, we want to go as deep as you guys want to go, but we also want to have some takeaways for the average Huckleberry at the end of this thing. Um, this is how we're thinking of starting. If you guys are cool with this, why don't we do... We're not going to go too formal here. This is just the beginning. We'll kind of say this and then we'll just let this thing run. Um, why don't each of you kind of intro your stance and what you think you see different from the other person? And we'll kind of go each of you maybe uninterrupted for however long you, you feel like you want off the bat. It can be short, it can be long, whatever, but just kind of an intro to how you see it, how you think that's different from the other person. Maybe we'll start with Joe and then go to Greg. Sure. That's Seems fine. fair to me. Uh, so... I'll start from the position that I want to make sure everybody's clear where I stand with Bitcoin in general, because I know Greg's been transparent about this to his credit, and I will be transparent as well. I actually checked it and did the math because it can fluctuate uh, basically on a volatile asset. But I have uh, upwards currently of 65% of my entire net worth in Bitcoin. Okay. Vast majority. Uh, uh, some would say an irresponsibly long position. I don't regret it at all. I don't have any plans to sell and I will be buying all the way down because I am fortunate enough to be gainfully employed. But um, I talk about bonds and I know Greg does as well. And I talk about the dollar and I talk about this for a very uh, fundamental reason. It's not because I'm a, I'm a bull on these assets. I do believe in the short term, they provide some uh, good optionality for trades. None of what I say is any investment advice, just as I'm sure Greg would say as well. You've everybody do your own research. Don't follow in footsteps uh, that anybody on the internet tells you how to invest. But I do believe that the dollar and bonds in general uh, look very attractive here. And we can go into reasons why. And I'm not a bull on these assets because I think of being a bull uh, implies that you're somehow optimistic long-term on these things. And you think that, you know, these are, these are valuable things moving on a moving forward basis. That's not my view at all. My position comes from a very simple recognition and it's a recognition that currently, and for the foreseeable future, the dollar will remain the global reserve currency. I think many in Bitcoin have accepted that. I also believe the treasury market for the foreseeable future will remain the global reserve asset. It is the backbone of all financial activity. Uh, it is the most important market in the world, and there is nothing foreseeable on the horizon anywhere in the short or immediate term that's going to change that dynamic. Um, 
I don't know if Greg agrees with that. I don't know where he stands. I, there's been you know comments out there that have been put out that make me question whether he does. But what I want to hear, you know, from an education standpoint, I want people to get is that the treasury market is essential for global economic ac- uh, activity. It's essential for our mortgages. It's essential for manufacturing, for tech companies, for clients I speak with on a regular basis who are following these markets very closely for cost of capital even for Bitcoin's price appreciation, because right now Bitcoin trades like a long duration asset. It is a short vol asset. That's how the market treats it. I think the market's dead wrong and I think we'll eventually learn that. But I'm not going to ignore the writing on the wall right now that the entire global system requires a well-functioned, well-oiled treasury market. It's predicated on treasuries. It's the coin of our realm, whatever you want to call it, the mother asset. So when I hear doom and gloomers out there tell you that treasuries are fiat contracts and that they're going to zero and the dollar is going to zero, my response is, if that's true, then everything else is going to zero too. Then it's the end of times, literally. And uh, you know that's that's the problem I have. You go onto these Bitcoin spaces and 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 again, to Greg's credit, I'll pay him a compliment. He said something on spaces. Uh, I think it was today or yesterday that Bitcoin's not ready. It's not ready because the world's not ready to embrace it as an asset. And I think that's the correct view. Um, Bitcoin is far, far and away being ready to fill the demand that the world needs it to do. And I think we're both optimistic long term, but we disagree on the time frame. You know, you, you get these people in these rooms who focus on the fact that the Fed has, quote unquote, printed more money than any other country, uh, save maybe Japan over the last 10 years. And what do you have? You have record demand for Treasury, particularly by foreigners, and you have record demand for the dollar globally. So clearly, there's something that people have yet to get when it comes to the dollar and treasuries globally and the importance of the role they play. They play a critical role in our system. And you can't focus on the treasury market like an individual investor could, um, individual investor does. That's wrong because treasury markets have utility in our system. As Greg knows, and I think as both you, uh, Dan and Josh know, they effectively provide financial lubrication. They are the collateral of last resort. They're not something that people, they're, 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 they are the insurance effectively. I know Greg likes to talk about Bitcoin insurance. Actually in our system, when the proverbial uh, you know, shit hits the fan, so to speak, they rely on their treasuries to defend their currencies. And we're seeing this all across the globe right now. Because of the global dollar shortage, many countries are having to sell their treasuries in a very liquid, deep, sophisticated market to offset the pressures from raging CPI, international geopolitical threats, and everything else. They're the insurance policy. That's why even in a dynamic where you've got, you know, quote unquote, printing en masse from the Fed, which you know we can get into QE and why that's not really money printing, but put that aside. Even in that dynamic, you still have record purchases, and I, I, I'll you can call up some charts in a little bit from foreigners to buy these devices because they have a utility premium. This is why the four-week Treasury bill is yielding lower than reverse repo right now. It's because these instruments have value. So you know, I I really think it's important for Bitcoiners, and I'll just wrap up with this because I've been going for a while. It's really important for Bitcoiners to get the narratives correct. Okay. And I was very upset last year when, and I'm not going to name names because that's not the point of this, but there were people out there, not Greg, but other people that were saying, Bitcoin's your protection against raging CPI. And then when CPI takes off, people are disappointed and it sets a false expectation. And then when people go out there and say, you know, many publicly, you guys can go through names, public, huge Twitter accounts with 100,000 followers were saying, companies, corporations are coming in to pump your bags and buy Bitcoin when there's absolutely no evidence of that other than a a few eccentric billionaires that want to buy it and add it to their balance sheet. Um, Those false expectations and narratives, I think, confuse people. And the biggest disagreement, and perhaps the only respectful disagreement I have with Greg, and I admire him for a lot of reasons, is this 
uh, comparison of Bitcoin to insurance. You know, he put out this tweet yesterday about how, you know, five year CDS swaps are 29 basis points. And that's going to, uh, you know, effectively, that's a price of insurance on U.S. default. And the, you know, the, the he does the calculation. He basically says the intrinsic value, I think, is one hundred and fourteen thousand dollars based on this. I think. We can get into it, but I think there's so many assumptions with that that are just completely flawed. Number one, that the U.S. even can default. Number two, uh, that in a global economic crisis, when, uh, again, the shit is hitting the fan, people are going to rush into an asset that they don't even fully understand and the market doesn't get at this point. And number three, that Bitcoin's going to benefit from global economic collapse. I think that's wrong. Bitcoin is going to benefit from us continuing to kick down, can down the road and debase the system. So, you know, my view, just in summary, is debt and demographics are destiny. They will drive us towards more monetization of our debt. They will drive central banks and policymakers and everyone across the world to do whatever they can to kick the can down the road. There will be a reversion to the mean when it comes to deflationary dynamics in our society. And Bitcoin will be the biggest beneficiary of all of that. You want this system to keep chugging along because you want the soft landing. You want the situation where we can slowly, gradually onboard millions, if not billions of people onto the Bitcoin network. Network, and the old system dies not with a bang, but with a whimper. That's my hopeful vision of Bitcoin's future. And um, I'm interested to see where Greg disagrees. Amen. Uh, well said, Greg, over to you. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, respectfully, Joe, thank you for a great introduction. And uh, I want to follow it up with a compliment to you um, and your um, uh professionalism in the in the bitcoin space there are people out there certainly that uh they don't understand uh they don't stay in their lane they don't understand uh what they're they don't know what they don't know at the end of the day so let's um start with where i think we might have uh had a disagreement because the reality is the bond market is much more balanced right now in its asymmetry in my opinion than it was when i first came to this space and got uh, a little bit of recognition because I published this mm. paper on uh, Bitcoin as portfolio insurance on a fixed income portfolio, okay? Credit insurance on a fixed income portfolio. As most people know, perhaps they don't, uh, I spent my, my entire career in credit. So I always come at a problem by looking at the uh, credit markets first. I will also say I have no ax to grind in the bond market right now. I made my uh, trade short bonds apparent when the TLT is a benchmark. The TLT was above 150. And I did cover my short when the TLT hit 112. The TLT has recently traded down to 101-ish, 102. And let's not get caught up in the numbers. Uh, if I had to make a bet right now, which I don't have to do anything because I'm not managing anybody's money except my own, I would probably lean slightly bullish on bonds as a trade. And this is where I need to really get uh, granular with the audience, okay? So what is a bond? A bond, now respect to Joe, is a contract. I think we would all agree with that, Joe. It's a contract where you are paid a coupon over a period of time and the maturity of that coupon of, of that contract is the the length of the bond maturity and the bond is paid semi-annually and there is no subjectivity to it there if things are going well 
It's not like they increase the coupon to distribute the wealth to the bondholders. In the event that there's a subordinate claim in an equity position, obviously those claims accrue to the equity holder in the capital structure of a corporation, for example. But for a bond, people need to understand that over the life of a bond, let's take the 10-year bond, which I agree with Joe, is the most important instrument in the world. All capital markets prices are set off the U.S. Treasury 10-year yield. You start with that yield as a base. Whether you are a foreign government, whether you are a corporation, whether you're an investment grade versus high yield corporation, you start with a cost of funds or an assumption of a base level of return to a quintessential risk-free borrower. Now, I happen to agree that, or perhaps disagree with Joe, there is a small component of default risk within the U.S. Treasury. And I'm not the only one that believes that because if I was the only one that believed that, CDS on the United States, credit default swap insurance on the U.S. would trade for zero, but it doesn't. It trades for a premium that reflects people's desire to insure themselves against a potential, however minuscule, potential default of the USA. And I'll say that when people say, how could they possibly default FOSS if they can print their own money? And the reality is that CDS spread is a combination of Default risk, as well as the potential that people don't take your printed money anymore. In the case of Venezuela, they shoveled the money to the curb. You saw pictures of that. The USA will be the last fiat to fail, and it's not going to happen tomorrow, and it probably won't happen in the next 20 years. Okay, I need to be clear about that. The problem is there'll be 180 other countries in the world, fiat countries, that will fail. Canada will fail 10 years, in my opinion, before the USA does. And when that happens, there is a contagion effect that rolls over into its biggest trading partner. Canada and the US share the biggest trading relationship in the world. Do you think if Canada defaults, that won't have an impact on US finances? I can guarantee you it will. And that's why in uh, credit, contagion is such a large concern. Going back to the contract, how are prices set? They are set by buyers and sellers. And Joe, I think that this is where we might have a little bit of a disagreement. But before we go there, understand what that yield, let's take the U.S. 10-year yield, which today I just looked, U.S. 10-year 363, 3.63% 3 annualized or semi-annual return equivalent. It did just hit 4% when the gilt market, the 30-year gilt market in Britain hit 5%. So there's a correlation between those two markets and the correlation traders who were getting steamrolled in gilts were shorting U.S. Treasuries as protection, driving the yield higher as they drove the bond price lower. Anyway, stick with me here, people. 3.63%. If you were to buy that U.S. 10-year treasury, absent of a default over the next 10 years, the maximum return you can expect is 3.63%. It's a contract. Now, you can say I'm the world's greatest trader and I'm going to buy the bonds 
And when they go up in price, I'm going to sell them. Then I'm going to re-enter the market when the price drops again. And I'm going to play this game. And I'm going to tell you, you're a liar. You cannot do that consistently because if you could, accounts would outperform their benchmark over time called actively managed bond accounts. They don't. Look at the numbers. And why is that? Because it's a market and you can't outperform the market. The return of the market is all the players. So on average, what they do is they pay transaction fees and a management fee and you lose that return. The point is, Joe, I think both of us would agree. Neither of us would be in a trade on the U.S. 10-year for the next 10 years at 3.63%. Is that fair? That's completely accurate. There we go. So this is where we might be disagreeing on a trade versus an, an investment philosophy. So when I started this and I wrote this paper, and Joe, I don't know if you've read it, but this is the paper, 40-page paper, and I'm not trying to say that it's got to be read because it's got a lot of stuff in it. It's just my history. I published it 20 months ago when U.S. 10-year yields were one and a half percent-ish. Okay, high yield bonds were yielding under 4%. And I basically said, I love Bitcoin. And if you are going to take an allocation out of a balanced portfolio, please take it out of your bond position because I view bonds as being asymmetric return opportunities to the downside. There were negative yielding bonds in the world. Going back to what that yield rewards you for to begin with, the 3.63% rewards you for inflation expectations, a minuscule part of credit risk, but it's not zero, and liquidity risk. Nothing else. That's what you have to be rewarded for in the U.S. Treasury market over 10 years. Now, what happens if you advance money at 100 cents on the dollar? at a 3.63 coupon, and you keep it for 10 years, after 10 years, you will get your money back with all high likelihood, not certain, but very high likelihood. And that money you get back has been debased. That is my biggest concern with a hold period on a fixed income instrument where the currency needs to be debased because of the debt spiral. And today's a very substantial day. I don't know if you guys saw that the USA past 31 trillion as their funded debt obligations in the world right now 31 trillion that's over $100,000 per US citizen funded debt the unfunded debt which is medicare and medicaid this is the scary part is 170 trillion incremental dollars it's another $500,000 per US citizen the point is simple. The mathematics do not support anything else but money printing to satisfy this debt spiral. So regardless of whether you think you can make 3.63% over the next 10 years, my argument is the debasement of the currency over that period of time will be so severe that you will have a negative realized return. No argument over whether it should be a trade. Again, if I had to trade this, I would be slightly biased to the long side, meaning I'm not shorting it here. I shorted it at one and a half percent. It's now three and 
3.63%, and it tapped out or topped out at 4 Ray Dalio thinks it goes to 45 to 5%. Ray Dalio, congratulations on your retirement, sir. He made 30% this year, boys. He's up 30% in a down market. How does he do that? Legend. He shorts, he shorts instruments like bonds when they are negative yielding. And he levers those shorts. So Ray Dalio knows how to manage the fiat system. Problem is, most investors, small investors, mom and pop investors do not know how to do this. And this is why we always have to differentiate between a shorter term trade viewpoint, next 12 months, maybe half year, 12 months, but 10 years, I am not a buyer of U.S. Treasuries for 10 years for the very solid reason, according to J.P. Morgan, uh, excuse me, well, you saw it was a J.P. Morgan report. I was going to reference uh, Timmer, Urian, or Urian Timmer at uh, Fidelity. Both of those analysts believe there is a very large supply concern coming with treasuries. They don't know where to find the buyers, Joe. So I'm sure you're going to show me charts of where you see other people buying U.S. treasuries. But the mathematics of when Japan is selling the treasuries because they're trying to sell, defend their yen, and then Russia is selling theirs because, well, they got their accounts frozen. This is where the concern is, how do you fund this debt spiral on a sustainable basis? So I guess when we start all these arguments and discussions, let's say that, when we start the discussions, let's make sure we lay out a time frame on this discussion. Because mm, most of mom and pop investors will not have a time frame that's sensitive to changing information like you and I perhaps have. And this is where the big difference comes in arguments. Let's define, if we're going to talk about a pivot, how do we define what we call a pivot versus what other people think is a pivot? And then finally, I'm going to sum it up. I don't own as much Bitcoin as you. Congrats on your conviction. I own probably one half as much Bitcoin as you do. And I think that's just fine for someone like me in terms of my asymmetric return profile to the upside versus the volatility of an asset that shakes people out. I mean, it shook a good friend of both of ours out of the market, and he was public about that shakeout. And I'll call him Bitcoin Tina, but some other people will, you know, say, hey, I got shook, what, what shook out of the own, market. What else do you own, Greg? In terms of my what net worth? What else do you own? Hard yeah, if, you assets, want to, so, if you don't want to share, that's yeah, fine. No, it's no, fine. No, no, I'm just I saying. Own, yeah. I own three properties. I, I own a property in Canada. I own two properties in the U.S. I owned a second property in Canada in, in a, a ski community called Whistler that I just sold. And I manage that as a hard asset. I have gold. I have silver. I obviously have stocks. I have zero exposure to bonds to, for the first time in my career. I have zero exposure to bonds. And I'm a partner in a power company that sells power to Bitcoin uh, off takers. So there's a call it a derivative exposure to Bitcoin in that, in that component there. Okay. So yeah. look, I have a portfolio that's not reflected by most people in the world. Why, uh, you know, uh, have I done okay in, in life in terms of being able to accumulate these assets? Absolutely. I'm lucky. I, I got lucky with the fiat system, but my goal now, as much as anything is to accumulate a portion of my Bitcoin for my children. I have no desire to see the world collapse. 
in the next 10 years. I mean, that would be a foolhardy thing for anybody to wish that this system collapses. We are nowhere near ready. Nobody's ready for a full-fledged Armageddon. I believe that that would lead to, lead to social unrest and most likely yeah. World War III. I don't want any of that shit, okay? I want Bitcoin for my children as, and if we have an issue on insurance. I'd like to talk to you about that, but that's fine. It's a model. My model is the way I like to look at things. I don't have, have to have other people believe in it or not. It's how I get comfort in terms of, again, I've come through this credit default swap markets. I traded them through the great financial crisis. They were a blessing and they were also a horror. Okay. CDS is just another instrument to allow people to blow up. And you, you got to be careful with these instruments that are out there. But finally, most important, Let's look at the true budget of the United States if it was a standalone borrower in the world, which it ultimately will be, and look at those dynamics and those credit metrics and say, there, there are some concerns over that. And whether that credit risk component of the total yield, even though the credit risk component is minuscule right now, what if that starts growing and inflation expectations are not the most important thing? It becomes credit risk. I've seen it happen many times. Everyone shakes it off. Oh, how could this AAA company possibly, let's take General Electric as an example. How could General Electric ever, ever be credit risk? Well, guess where General Electric right now? Triple B rated security from AAA down to triple B on the cusp of being high yield debt. This th these things change and it's reflected in markets called credit default swaps or credit spreads over cash paying bonds. Be careful, people. My goal is to find asymmetric trades that are biased to the upside, not biased to the downside. And just going back 20 months, bonds were the most ridiculous investment opportunity I had ever seen to the point where UK pension plans were levering the one and a quarter percent on their 30 year bonds three times to turn that one and a quarter percent, hopefully into three and three quarters percent. Guess what? That bond is down over 50% this year. So you lost 50% on a position that was levered three times. That's why they had to come in and rescue the pension plans in the UK. That is a disaster when you bring leverage into an equation like that. So thank you for, you know, understanding my position. I'd like to discuss the, the various uh, issues, why you don't think that Bitcoin is default protect or excuse me, is, is insurance, but that's all good. The bigger picture here is we're aligned on a investment exposure that will benefit in, I think, all outlet likely outcomes. In other words, I think all paths lead to Bitcoin, regardless of whether your viewpoint on US 10 years in the short term is correct, or whether my view is correct. The mathematics lead to Bitcoin. Be a good risk manager. When the information changes, well, maybe we'll have to change our position accordingly, right? But for now, I am not changing my exposure. My exposure was as high as 50% at one point. Why? Well, because Bitcoin has come down by from the all-time highs. I'm sure yours was much higher too, Joe, unless you've just been adding a whole lot at the bottom, which I'm fine no, with too. No, no. But I, I got I, into I Bitcoin felt... in two, 
I got into Bitcoin in 2016 when it was under $1,000. So I rode that position up. Did I sell some? 100% I sold some. It's my business. I manage risk that way. I don't ever want to be in a position where I have no dry powder to buy something or the flip side being, damn, I was telling everybody to buy it at 70,000 and then I didn't, you know, I, I believed my own bullshit. We're not smarter than the market. I'm not saying people should trade Bitcoin daily or anything like that. But if it gets to be a too big a position in your portfolio where you're not sleeping properly at night, I think that's speaking to yourself. It's telling you, yeah. you can't so, handle that exposure. Yeah, so, Joe, on me share. Yeah, I didn't want to interrupt, but there's just a lot of good talk, little nuggets I want to go over. Okay, let's go back for a second, okay? And, and I think we may be in agreement on this, that the signs are all over the place. We could be headed for an economic hurricane. Um, you see growth rates slowing, uh, contrary to people that were saying we're in a recession this year or not, uh, the data has, you know, consistently remained, uh, uh, at least, uh, keep mild. Uh, I would say there hasn't been an economic collapse this year, contrary to people calling that all the entire year. You had GDI that was positive every single quarter so far this year. You had, uh, you know, nominal GDP through the roof on a real basis. It's slightly negative in, in Q1 and Q2. And you have a print coming for Q3 if GDP now cast is uh, to be trusted on Atlanta Fed for 2.3%, which is bigger than most of the GDP growth during the Obama years. So we're not in a recession currently, but we could be headed for one. And let's go back to what, what Greg says. And I think this is important for investors. And again, none of this is financial advice, but I think it's important to look at asset classes. In an economic hurricane, in a deleveraging event, in a deflationary spiral, whatever you want to call it, where there's contagion and systemic risk and, you know, Greg's talking about credit risk and GE and you have companies going under, where does money go? In our system, when money is scared, where does it hide? And the answer is the treasury market. And you can go look at the last several crises we have. Look at the COVID crisis with Greg referenced, you know, COVID 10-year treasury bottomed out at what, 0. 0.4, 0.3% on a 10-year treasury. Why was that? Because the entire system is designed to pile into these assets when, again, the proverbial shit hits the fan. That's the way it's constituted. Same thing within the great financial crisis. You saw people hiding out in bonds. Why do they do that? Why do they go into bonds if there is some credit risk? Because we know that in our system, if there's one thing we can count on, which again, I agree with Greg, it's not 100% certain, nothing is in managing risk. But if there's the lowest risk spectrum, it's that the United States government is going to do what it takes to backstop the system. That is, the, that is they're going to do what it takes to reliquify the treasury market. So if you're talking about a trade in the short term, and you're in this environment. And Greg, you know, I'll share my, I have exposure to stocks. I have real estate. I have my Bitcoin position and I have my bond position, which I purchased and put on with options, which to me, that is the quintessential insurance and protection for your, uh, uh, for your portfolio. It's a small position. It's fewer than, you know, 4% of mine. And if I'm right, and the system does have a deflationary spiral, it's going to pay off. Uh, it's going to be a huge asymmetric return the way I put the position on with 2024 call options. I'm down on them uh, 10% last time I checked because I've averaged into the position. But the point being, we can, and again, no one's supposed to follow me in this trade. That's not the point. The point is that if you see storm clouds on the horizon and you say, my entire net worth is in say, real estate, stocks, and Bitcoin, there's only two ways to really protect against the deflationary spiral. It's cash, which 
you know, it's fine. I think people holding uh, higher levels of cash, that's, you know, perfectly legitimate given the economic conditions we're in and the uncertainty on the horizon. That's a good way to offset risk. And the other way to mitigate it is uh, bonds and bills. If you're in bonds and bills, you're going to have that dry powder that Greg was just talking about to effectively buy the dip on these assets. And by the way, in a deleveraging event like we're talking about, it's not just going to be Bitcoin. It's going to be everything. This is why you've seen gold. I mean, it's kind of amazing. People think gold's a safe haven asset, and, and Greg and I may disagree on gold. I think gold is tied up in this liquidity uh, uh, um, you know, environment like everything else, like Bitcoin, like stocks. They're all dependent on free flow of capital. And when you see a rush to safety, when you see a rush to the dollar, as evidenced by the spike in DXY, you, what, what happens? When the, when the DXY spikes, stocks sell off, gold sells off, Bitcoin sells off, even bonds sell off, right? Because the world's short dollars. And that's the dynamics of our system. And by the way, you see the bonds selling off the way they did, not merely because the Fed is hiking. That's wrong because there's been plenty of times in history. You can go back to 2017 and go back to 2004. The, head, the Fed is hiking aggressively and the dollar is falling alongside that. Uh, the, the, the dollar is, is, is effectively responding to geopolitical risk in, in, in a mad scramble for dollars globally. That's the key thing. It, whenever there's geopolitical risk, whenever there's inflation, it hurts emerging markets tenfold what is hurting the United States. Mm. Because not only are they hit by the price pressures, but they're hit by the, convert, uh, the currency risk. And this was happening in Britain as well. They're already in a recession. Okay, UK is in a recession right now, and to ba- and I, I don't know if you guys saw the last podcast today. I think you commented on it, but this professor um, Wei Zindu of Chicago Booth, he, she broke down the data and, and showed through her econometric models that the majority of the sell-off in the gilt market was driven by uh, the Great British Pound US uh, USD um, currency pair. That's that's what was driving it. They were trying to offset those, and in Greg's right, they're using the Treasury market to try to hedge. That's the whole point. The treasury market is a hedge for uncertain environments geopolitically, for uncertain environments economically. And right now, if you do believe we are t- trending towards uh, deflation, we're trending towards a recession, you should expect bonds to do well. And it sounds like, Greg, if he had a gun to his head, he would say the same thing. And again, when I say bonds, I don't mean corporate bonds. I'm speaking specifically about the treasury market, because again, that is your true insurance policy in this dynamic. And now, is, is it possible that you could have a global recession and everything can go to hell and there won't be any effort to bail out the treasury market? I don't think so. I think any way you cut it, if there's one market that, and I see Greg wants to get in here, but if there's one market that will keep the Fed up at night and will you know cause them to consider reevaluating their policy or doing something to liquefy it, it's the treasury market. They cannot withstand, they cannot stand the treasury market to break. It is the market of last resort. And, and just look at the data. Like, I mean, these bigger institutions, these bigger pensions funds, big, bigger foreign sovereigns, they need a market where they can liquefy hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars in a short amount of time. Do you think you can do that with Bitcoin right now? Mm. Go, look at, go look at what Saylor said about having to buy you know, a, a, a Bitcoin, how difficult it is in a short duration to get Bitcoin off of exchanges or buy it from an OTC desk. You can't put on those big positions with Bitcoin yet. It's just too small. We're years away from that. So yeah. anyway, Joe, I'm sorry, Greg. I, I saw you on. So no, no, but, no, if no, I could just jump great, in look, look, one sorry. question real quick, Greg. I'm sorry. I'll cut you off. I just yeah, want to ask Joe yeah. one really quick question about his idea there. So it sounds to me like, so you said this options position is about roughly 4% of your portfolio. So the yeah. way you're positioning this is almost um, your view of portfolio insurance for yourself. Correct. Um, against like having these ultra 
aggressive situation, like 65% Bitcoin, obviously that's extremely volatile. You're watching your net worth up and down all the time. Collapse. Right. Yeah. So more, than, more than seven figures down. Okay. It's not fun. <laughs> I feel okay. you, man. Believe me. I mean, listen, so, I, I'm not, I'm not anti-Bitcoin. I'm not, I'm, I, I'm the biggest Bitcoin yep. bull you'll find. But I think it's really important for everyone to listen and everyone understand that this position is what Joe is viewing as insurance for his overall portfolio. And when you characterize it that way, Joe, it makes a lot of sense to me. And um, I hope people are following to understand that. He's basically levering this small position size so that if there was you know, e economic shitstorm, this would very likely increase in value substantially, thereby protecting your downside risk in in Bitcoin and all these other. And if I'm Greg, Greg, and, and if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, and Bitcoin skyrockets and goes to 100k from here, and sovereigns default, guess what? I'm going to be sitting pretty either way, right? I mean, I'm right. going to be fine. Greg, before you go, I want to pull up one of your tweets, Joe, because I think it's a good summary for some of what you've described. One second here. If you're watching us on YouTube, you can see this. Um, you guys see that? Yeah. yeah. So. Tommy, if you, I'm assuming you still resonate with this. This is the reason. Two paths. This is your tweet. Cut rates, QE, monetization, fiscal stimulus to avoid recession, all of which bring yields down sharply. Option two, keep rates higher, crash asset prices. Now we're in the recession realm. Trigger liquidity crisis and eventually cause a depression, which also brings UST yields down sharply. You choose. Yeah. Um, you want to elaborate on that just a touch? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that either way you 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 move forward, you these rates are not sustainable, and I think I think Greg agrees with that. I mean, the debt levels are not sustainable for the long term. You can't have, you, well, in in my mind, and, and if you don't trust me, look at Stanley Druckenmiller. He's he's saying a ten year above four percent consistently for any long period of time makes the finances of the U.S. government not not sustainable, and that's his quote, not mine. Um, you you are at levels here where I think you can call them peacockishness, right? You can 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 yields go higher? Absolutely. I didn't think they would go this high, to be honest. I think if you would have polled people last year and said we're going to be doing seventy five bip, seventy five bip, seventy five bip hike, and the and the system uh, isn't going to collapse, they would have said you're crazy. It'll it'll fall apart within weeks, and that's I heard that consistently over over. So who's buying this? Who's buying this paper? Who's holding it together? Why aren't you seeing massive unemployment? Why aren't you seeing credit crises? I mean, you've got you know some threads that have blown out and become you know. Uh, I mean, they're stressed. There's no doubt, right? They're stressed, and no one's going to dispute that. But I mean, I sent over pull up the St. Louis Fed financial stress index. Pull up the Chicago Fed uh, financial conditions. You have all those charts. Look at those. The St. Louis Fed financial stress index shows record low stress in the financial system. What is it? Just dumb. The model's just broken. I mean, maybe it's possible, but I mean, I'm, we're looking off the best available data and I don't think you, you're seeing this sort of economic collapse that people are talking about. Maybe we'll get it eventually. But uh, I think it was in the attachments I had, I sent yeah, to you. Yeah, I'm trying to find which yeah. one it anyway, is. Anyway, Greg wanted to go, so yeah. we won't waste time. Well, no, no, this is good. This is good. Um, gentlemen, look, I, I, there's two things I'd like to say. Firstly, the, I follow this uh, uh, a, a report called the Bear Traps Report. It's put together by uh, some credit guys, uh, uh, Larry McDonald. But anyway, he also has a, a stress indicator, 21 indicators of financial stress. Uh, he calls it his Lehman Index. He sees the markets differently. Uh, he sees it as the highest levels of stress since the COVID, the depths of the COVID crisis. There is obviously different... Uh, uh, metrics or components of that stress level. But I think what I'd like to go back or just take, Joe, I agreed with everything until you say global depression 
and then rates go lower. How do they go lower when people are therefore concerned about being appropriately rewarded for a risk they are taking for a credit event? You can't say that we can go into a global depression and not understand that the credit metrics of the U.S., which are already horrible, wouldn't get meaningfully worse, and therefore people would avoid focusing on the inflation remuneration from the credit or the yield rather and no, switch Greg, that into a cre- a credit concern. Greg in a, Go in, ahead. A, in a in a hard downturn, you know as well as I do, you're not going to be concerned about inflation. It's not going to be an issue. And there's well, never been a deflation. That, it's, it's credit though. It's credit. And when you respectfully okay, when so, you look back at other ones though, there was not the same level of credit stress in the USA. The COVID crisis itself pushed the U.S. over the limit where it is now mathematically impossible to skate the budget deficit on side. I've sent some stuff to the fellas. I don't even want you to put it up, guys, but this is from the Congressional Budget Office themselves. This is from the internal offices of the United States that show a a deficit funding that is basically unsustainable. It's so crazy that they even publish this. And people say, okay, that's fine. Well, we'll just keep printing money to fund the debt. That's okay. It just means that your debt component, excuse me, your error term of the debt spiral is a debasing currency. And the US dollar, yes, it is the best horse at the glue factory. I mean, that is absolutely 100%. But it doesn't mean that you have to own that. You get positive returns on your bonds, but you get negative returns on your debasing of the currency. And that's the biggest thing I have. Thank you for putting that up. This is the Congressional Budget Office of the deficit of the USA out through the years um, to 2050. What assumption for rates? What assumption for rates are you using on the chart? It's not me. It's the CBO. And the rates are lower than they currently are right now. They were growing at about, you know, a 2% interest rate. If you get to 4%, that compounding that Stanley Druckenmiller just points out makes this uh, deficit so much. So the primary deficit, let's go through that. The primary deficit is entitlement and it is uh, military spending. The blue, which is the net interest, is the growth of the deficit because of the increased coupons on your expanding debt spiral. Well, look. Right. So who's going to buy that? that? Who will buy that? Be- the Fed. Yes. That's the Fed. Only the Fed. There's not enough money in the world for all the other central banks to buy it. So the Fed buys it. It's called QE infinity. And when you have QE infinity, you have rapidly debasing US money. Fiat though. Does the DXY still go up in value? Yeah, probably. You know why? Because all the other countries are even worse shape. And that's the problem. We're comparing a debasing uh, currency, a melting ice cube, U.S. dollar fiat with other melting ice cubes. And the U.S. dollar just happens to be melting slower. So this is why I have concern with people who look at the return in the bonds, but forget the debasement of the currency. This is why I can't tell you anything except what the Congressional Budget Office just put out for a 30-year bond. I would not own a 30-year bond. I said the, the uh, 10-year bond was... 363. The 30-year bond U.S. Treasury right now is 369. Man, I don't know. I know Raul Paul and those guys were bullish on bonds and he even had a t-shirt made up and everything and it went in his face. 
I have one more thing to say, though. I like your position putting it on in options. The problem that I see with putting it in options, what is the implied volatility on your option? Have you checked that, the, what the option market is charging you as an implied yeah, I mean, volatility? I, I bought I- I bought a whole sequence of these things so I can pull them. But up right now, here's the craziest specific. thing. But treasury volatility, treasury volatility is higher than equity volatility. You're paying a lot for that option. That time value of that option is expensive. And you know why? It's higher because you've you you've had the fastest hiking cycle in history. I, it's okay, higher because you it. have 75 bips after But it's still expensive. It, so <laughs> Can I compliment you on doing it through options? I need people to understand, though, that the decay, the time decay in that option is substantial because of the vol. And when the yeah. equity vol sure. is lower than the, the move, what's called the MOVE, the treasury vol, boy, these options positions, they are expensive. So I like it by putting it on that way because you know what your downside risk is. It's the premium you put into the option market. That's all you're going to lose. And what is the upside? Well, an Armageddon scenario where you are, in fact, calling the price of the bond market correctly. My problem is what happens to that currency over that period of time? Yours is a 2024. Cool. Let's agree that for a 2024 position, my situation is not as concerning as a 30-year situation where you will see the a combined impacts of a debasing currency over that time. So... You know, Yuri and Timmer laid this out. I'm not sure. I think you don't agree with Luke Roman, but he lays it out as well. I sent the tweets to the fellas. Yeah, let me find while you're Luke talking. Roman, I'll find it, Greg. It's okay. Don't don't worry because the point is this, guys. The net interest coverage of the USA right now is barely one times, which is which means at an average coupon of one and a half percent, the US barely covers its interest expense. When the debt rolls over and it goes to 4%, well, you're not even close to covering your interest expense. And that's what the Congressional Budget Office is laying so, out. So it ends, no, with, it ends with monetization, Greg. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's exactly what I wrote in the tweet. That's the, that's the monetization scenario. You, you're, you're exactly right. If there's, if there's not a big enough buyer and the market can't withstand it and yields start to go higher, guess what? They're not going to stay there. Because they will step in and bid that. You talked about, you said it yourself. I mean, we were in a clubhouse room over the summer and you said you expected above 3.5 on the 10-year treasury that yield curve control would start in the United States. Look at Japan, right? Yep. Look at what Japan has done for, for decades I, yeah. now. That's the they, only they're, solution. They're, That's basically the only solution. So then you monetize which, which the Which means yields going lower. Which means yields going lower. Which means uh, if you're I, I guess on I'll respectfully disagree. You're well. Why would they do? I think they they do it at like a three and a half percent, which means that's where you're stuck. It means there's a uh, unlimited bid there, but it also means that your fiat is sewering. Whether it's sewering against other fiats that are doing the no. same thing, no, it's a game of whack a mole. But it is sewering against hard assets like real estate, which you and I own. Uh, like you don't like gold. I I view gold as a better assets store of value than a lot of other things out there so we can respectfully disagree on the outcome i think though we would both how, agree how that is gold all a better leave. store of value how is gold given the expansion i don't want to talk I, I i i would i sir i don't i don't want to talk about it only to say i view gold as being better right now than owning certain financial institutions is that fair like i just don't see the risk we don't have to talk about it i 
I don't think that the data bears that out, but let's go back for a second. Let's go back to the depression-like scenario. In a depression, as you know, Greg, long-end rates are driven by growth expectations. It, it, it is, is an essential feature of, of the long-end. They're calculating the long-term growth. Throw up the chart, for example, of the labor force, part, I think it's labor force participation versus long-end interest rates. Hold on, you're going to have to tell me when here. Hold on. <laughs> it's a it's a chart. This this is the probably the most important chart you could look at. I'll I'll give you the title of it. Uh, While he's looking for that, I have a question for you guys about this whole rolling over the debt thing. So it it is my in my understanding, there's about nine trillion dollars that has to be rolled in the next at a boy year yeah, or so, two years, correct? Yeah. So if we maintain yeah. these interest rates until that period of time, how do you guys see that playing out? In the well, could I answer, Joe? Basically, it's you're right now have an average funding rate. So the U.S. has about forty five, sorry, four hundred and fifty billion is their annual interest expense right now on thirty trillion of debt, which means their average funding yield, their blending fund, blended funding yield is one and a half percent. Right? Again, four hundred and fifty billion divided by thirty trillion is one and a half percent annualized. That's right. the current so budget. So then if you have to roll this debt at a 3%, let's say they roll it at a blended yield of 3% on 9 trillion. Well, let's just to make the math easy, make 30 trillion times 3%. You're almost at a $1 trillion annual interest expense, at which point you're not even covering your interest expense one half times, which means yeah. you have to issue more debt to cover that interest expense. And if the only and buyer of that debt is the U.S. Fed, then they do it by printing money. But anyway, back right. to Joe's chart here. Is this the chart you're looking for, Joe? Yeah, that's exactly it. This tells you the whole story. This shows you a path of path towards disinflation and deflation over the long run because of the declining productivity. The Fed has its biggest control over short-end rates. The longer-term rates are driven by debt productivity, demographic issues, and what you see in the United States is deterioration in demographics, i.e., another way to say that, is declining growth. And with declining growth come lower and lower long-term rates and yields. That, that, Except, is, that is the can, But that's when your tax revenues, though, Joe, because your tax revenues aren't growing then, and then you, as a credit, okay. and you Linalden, you, a but, worse and worse credit. Well, Hold on, hold on. There is a historical precedent, and I know you know Lynn Alden's work. She she frequently uh, invokes the 40s, right? Where you had the same debt to GDP levels or similar debt to GDP levels we have now. What happened except out of the 1940s? Except for a trade balance. Except for except for a trade balance. With the U.S. was a net exporter, and now it's a net importer. That's the difference. Correct. 100%. Which is going to make it more difficult. Right, more difficult. Right. So that is going to put more more pressure on policymakers to have to intervene. That's more, I mean, th that's the argument. That's my essential argument, that you're going to have to have more intervention. You're going to have to have these rates be pegged or pushed lower. I guess what it means then is more debasement. And I guess we will agree that yeah. that means U.S. Deba currency debasement leads to Bitcoin. And right. I, I, you know, what, what I would say, just let's be careful about... All of the, the results in the last 40 years have been from financial crises that have started when interest rates were at 14% and went all the way down U.S. 10-year under 60 basis points. I think you mentioned 40. I, don't realize, I didn't realize they got that low, but even who cares? 60 basis points or 40 basis points is close enough to zero. The point is even in the great financial crisis, there was room to move rates down. And yeah, now- they're going to go negative. We, They'll go negative. Well, 
You'll have a negative tenure, and the U.S. will follow well, the path this of is every where, other well, sovereign then, state. Then, then, the, I mean, then look, the U.K. pension plans will blow up again because they'll have to lever their uh, their balance sheet to a negative U.S. Uh, a negative gilt te- uh, yield, which negative bond yields make no sense. They are an, they don't they're no longer an asset; they become a liability, and they, then you they flip exist, everything there's, on there's, there's trillions of dollars of negative yielding debt in the world. There's te- not there's anymore. Even more. There's there was of, nineteen trillion. There's tens of trillions of dollars of negative real yielding debt. Okay? Real yielding, right yeah. now, real yielding. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. But so, negative so how do they? Real, so when you say they, yield. so when you, I, I'm with adjusted for inflation. Nominal. But I understand. But what I'm saying is, when you say, "Oh, well, that won't work," it's working every day. Literally, institutions are making this work. Yeah, I mean, oh, okay, you're, that you gotta, may, well, I'm not sure they're making it work. They've lost fifteen trillion dollars in value. Right? Is there anybody US, not making the, a, the global bond market? Fund, lost has any pension fund missed a payment? Have they ever missed well, a payment? The UK would have if they didn't step in. That's why they stepped into the into That's the uh, LVI the situation. U- well, I, I I read different stuff. The US again, I ran through it. The 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 thirty year bond in the US in the U, UK rather, the gilt had a one and a quarter coupon issued at par. It is now trading or was when it hit five percent yield. It was trading at forty two cents on the dollar. And they had and they had levered it threefold. This was a disaster. These pension plans went unfunded. There is absolutely people who are opening up their statements saying, "I thought I was in risk-free gilts." Well, they weren't risk-free. And by the way, they got levered three times because they tried to reach their bogey by using leverage in the pension plan to reach their hurdle rates. This is where things blow up, Joe. It blew up in the UK right now. That is why. The, the uh, chancellor had to step in, the Bank of England, and say that they were a buyer of the long end. Everyone was a seller because they were getting margin called. You got to, you know, that's well documented. It didn't blow that's- up because, first of all, it, there's, there's a lot of factors in play, and we can go into the UK situation. It's not merely the rates. It was the DXY pressure globally that is not driven by the Fed, but independent factors. And if you look at the, the main reason, Greg, and you saw the great British pound bounce on this news is because they were foolhardy with how they rolled out their budget plan. They put out this budget, which I'm sure you're aware of, which showed a huge tax cut and they didn't explain how they were going to pay for it. So market participants freaked out. They didn't have chance to respond quickly enough. So what does that do? It creates volatility. It creates a spike in yields. It doesn't necessarily mean doomsday or mm-hmm. things are going to break or collapse it means that the market wasn't prepared to respond it was a, and that, that's the Joel, volatility it, it was a it was a pension strategy called ldi where they were using a dispersion index to try and manage leverage that really works well as long as rates aren't skyrocketing and when rates skyrocketed they all got their margin calls and they were a selling invoked selling. And that's why the UK 30 year guilt went from 2% to 5% in the last 90 days. Historic. The bond price went again from par a hundred cents on the dollar to down under 40 cents on the dollar in 30 days. Guys, do you not understand the, the magnitude of these price changes? Like it's just ridiculous. And this is, this was without leverage. Well, if you levered it three times again, I'll walk you through the math. You lost more than 100% of that particular silo in your portfolio. Luckily, they weren't 100% invested in that strategy. But the crazy thing is the UK was a much bigger player in the LDI space than 
the United States. There are pension plans in USA that do the same type of thing, including CalPERS, unfortunately, because they admitted they can't reach their bogey without using leverage in the pension plan. These are the dangers. I, you know what? The pound and the gilt market, obviously, inextricably linked, interest rate parity. These are all the components. But the biggest thing was margin calls in pension plans, from my understanding. Joe, do you have anything follow up there? And then I'm going to. No, I, I just direct gears. everybody and you can, you can, I was trying to find the, the tweet, but you can look at uh, ways in boo, the booth professor, and she shows the major stressors and the components and you can break down the models. It shows that this narrative about the pensions is not the predominant factor. I'm not saying it's not a factor. It wasn't an issue, but you had significant currency stress that is was driving that move. And the market doesn't like surprises. And the, and the, the UK government totally botched this rollout with their budget. That's caused a ton of volatility and caught the market off, off guard. And the market doesn't like surprises. And when you see surprises in any market, it causes volatility. And when people are over levered, uh, yeah, you're going to, you're going to get margin call. That's just basic, you know, basic market dynamics. Well, do you, the one thing I like, sorry, go ahead, Dan. I was going to say, I'm going to pull up this tweet by Jesse Gilger. Hold on one second here. Um, do you, so here is his question for this conversation. How long do you expect to hold your respective positions? Time horizon is everything. When it comes to bonds, I have a feeling Joe is thinking in quarters and Foss is thinking in decades. It seems like so far in this conversation on a decades long time horizon, your two positions collide or at least get very close to each other. Do you feel like this is an accurate representation of your positions? It seems like it is. It seems like most of this disagreement, as we suspected, is pretty time frame specific. You, uh, this is just a kind of a summative statement of this section. But you, you kind of both agree with that, or do either of you contest that summation? No, I think that's a good breakdown, at least of my position. I mean, uh, when we had the spike up to, I had already put on a good amount of my position even over the summer when we had the spike up to three point five, and then we sold off. Uh, excuse me, we're, uh, bonds were bought up pretty hard there. The ten year caught a bid at three point five. It wicked up there, and within you know a few weeks, it was back down. I think the two point seven somewhere around there. So I already took off half my position then, and then as we went, you know parabolic effectively back up to four. I kept adding the entire way and I, you know, I might add some more if we go to 4.5. I don't, you know, I, I haven't thought about it. We'll see. Um, you know, to my, to me, it is insurance because I think 2023 can be a very brutal year. I think that all the, all the signs are aligning that shows you the story is not inflation anymore. The story is slowing growth. I mean, look at today, you had a 10% increase in job openings. Okay. Yeah. Uh, excuse me, decrease. 10% decrease in job openings. You had a million job openings get cut. Uh, you've got all the signs of deflation and disinflation across the board. So you want to be prepared for that environment. And to me, you know, real estate, stocks, you know, Bitcoin, I love them all, right? They're the core of my portfolio, but I don't think they're going to, they're, they're going to all take a hit and everybody should be prepared for them to take a hit in a, a deleveraging event. Yeah. And I guess another statement I want to make, not to undercut your position at all, Joe, but you started off explaining how the magnitude of your Bitcoin position percentage wise in your portfolio and then saying your, you know, your long dated treasury options position is like 4%. So obviously we're not talking 30% of your portfolio here. We're talking a small no. subset hedge position and then Greg has none. So I don't know, I think that there's something to bear there in terms of where the, where the tokens actually are on the table. 
the one thing I want to get to before we get off this, and we have we we want to get to Bitcoin. Dan, one, let- one thing, one thing, uh, and, and this maybe Greg can answer this. Okay, and it, it'd be interesting for the view- viewers because we want to make this practical. If you're headed into an economic hurricane, which I've heard Greg say that he expects things can deteriorate and we can have a credit issue, just tell what you think, you know, without giving financial advice, what you think is a good hedge to Bitcoin. Because as I hear it, you, you tell people that 95% of your money should be in something other than Bitcoin. What What, what is a good hedge to your Bitcoin position? Let's well, let's be careful. That, yeah. Um, okay. The reality is I'm talking, I'm trying to talk to big money. Okay. I know that I, most of my followers are obviously people who are individual investors, and I'm very humbled by that. But when I wrote this paper, I wrote it for big asset managers, guys that will never take a position even larger than 10% of a portfolio, okay, in not in, in any single uh, uh, a security or even a basket of securities, okay? To, for them to get up to 20% exposure to private equity, for example, took almost a decade. And so when I talk about two to 5% exposures, I'm trying to talk mostly to big asset managers, guys who I've traded with my entire life that obviously for them to get a 2% exposure though, we're talking trillions of dollars that would flow into this asset class. So to answer your question though, and I agree it's not happening yet, but I do have enough experience in the high yield debt market to know that slowly than suddenly, as long as Fidelity is doing it, BlackRock has to do it because they have clients who are demanding that they do it. When I say they do it, BlackRock, or else they'll take their business to Fidelity. It was the same thing in the high yield bond market. It's the same thing for any emerging asset. They have to get comfortable with it. They have to see their competitors doing it because largely they are theory of agents. As long as everybody loses money the same way, Everyone's fine with that, right, Joe? Oh, Omer's a big Canadian pension plan lost money, but the same thing happened to the equivalent fund in Quebec, and so everybody's fine with that. That makes no no sense from a risk management. Safety in numbers. The, Safety in numbers. Okay, so he, correct. But here you you say my hedge is actually Bitcoin, so I don't hedge my hedge, and this is the way I'm trying to explain it to other larger asset managers, whereas you have an exposure that I, I told you, I couldn't sleep at night with that big of an exposure in an asset that you have given a, given back. I'm sure they were gains at one point. You said it yourself, you know, a meaningful size, most more money than most people ever get in their lives. And that's just the difference between family offices and high net worth individuals and big pension plans versus the average mom and pop investor who largely have their exposure to these assets through their pension funds. So I'm trying to talk to the pension funds. If you, on a spaces, there's a guy by the name of Worth. He's a Southern United States, used to manage big money. Ex hedge fund guy agrees with my approach because he's the same way. He managed money for large institutions and high, uh, family offices where you can't go to them and say, my exposure is 65% to this emerging asset class. They would fire you on the spot. Not because they didn't want to make money. It's not the, but Greg, well, it's that's the not money. It's the about. money I'm talking to. I'm trying to talk to We're, that. This money. is so the blue collar Bitcoin. Yeah. Wait, wait, hold, well, hold on one second. So I want to say this, cause I do want to end this bond section and then we do want to get to Bitcoin before we close this out. I'll, 
because I, we got to make this digestible for the average Jill and Joe. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. This is so blue for the for Bitcoin. The, for, so for, for $20,000 net worth. What are you yeah, telling that guy to do? 100% yeah, Bitcoin? This is the scenario. I mean, this is the scenario yeah. I want to hear the, the person I want to hear you both comment on before we get off this. The average Jill and Joe who is in the Vanguard, who's nearing retirement or whatever, they're in the Vanguard 2030 or the Vanguard 2025 and they're in their 403B or their 401K or their 457, right? And they don't even know what that means. They have significant exposure to a total bond market index, right? What's your thought for that person? Because that this this topic, although this may be common speak for people that speak financial ease, this is esoteric for the average person, right? So for, for your person that's passively investing, signing up with whatever their Fidelity or Vanguard account recommends. What what is your thought for that person on a, on that level of exposure to fixed income? I'll just go very briefly. Okay, so again, none of this is financial advice. You should consult with somebody who's registered. Blah blah blah. Legalese, all that nonsense. I'm just telling you hypothetically. Okay, in my my personal opinion, if I had money trapped in those sort of accounts that you were outlining, those sort of retirement accounts, I personally would have an asset blend that does not have a huge concentration of bonds. And in this environment we're in right now, every, and this is a legal requirement, every one of those funds you just named have to give their their uh, uh, participants a option to get into bills, right? To get into some sort of short-term treasury paper. That is your hedge in this environment. That will give you an ability to buy the dip if there is some sort of deleveraging event. Now, if you've got money that's outside of those accounts, it's totally different, right? If you've got, you know, liquid assets that you can invest, you know, you, you should be reasonable. You should do a Bitcoin allocation that, like Greg said, I agree, it lets you sleep at night. Uh, you're not overexposed. You'll be okay and you'll have money set aside. Dry powder if Bitcoin does, uh, if you get the, the opportunity of a generation to buy Bitcoin lower than where it is right now. But I don't, the question I was trying to get out of Greg, and he can answer it when he responds here is that, you know, there's aside from the bigger players you're talking to, you've got 111,000 followers. And those folks, I know a lot of them are overexposed to Bitcoin. I talk to them. I talk to people that have higher allocations than me. Our buddy, Bitcoin Tina, right? He had a massive Bitcoin allocation, right? He sold down to the sleeping number. There's nothing wrong from that. He was chastised by it, by the group, yeah. by the crowd, right? They, 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 maybe he was overexposed, never should have put that position on to begin with. That wasn't proper risk management. I'm sure you can agree with all that. But he still has a massive chunk of Bitcoin. Right. And he has dry powder in the event of some sort of, you know, hard landing next year to buy the dip. And he intends to do that if you talk to him. So other people out there, I question if they're prepared for that event. And I want people to be prepared. That's the only message. That's the only disagreement yeah. we may have. But I don't know. Joe, how when you, you say prepared, it. I guess, well, I know this isn't financial advice. And we've said that a million times, but I don't want people jumping off buildings. Right. Bitcoin's I don't at want 5K that next year. I don't <laughs> like, want to see yeah, that happen either. It's, that and it's, it's a potential for a lot of people. You know, a lot of people we'll, think we'll they can be the one the going shit. to get them. Yeah. Don't yeah. do that. Yeah. I've, I've seen enough people do that. The point I'm trying to get at is so for the average Joe, I'm not, I'm not going to jump in the options market and play around with that shit because I have some basic understanding, but I know myself well enough to know that I don't know it well enough. You know, so I sit on a bit of cash. And cash. you know, if this happens, there you, you go. save 10, yeah. 15% of my portfolio is cash. Is that, yes. I mean, that's a number that I'm pretty comfortable with that I have an opportunity cost. I potentially miss out on, but again, I have some dry powder for this potentiality if it does come to pass. And if it doesn't, you know, I wasted maybe a year sitting on it. If it doesn't, so, your Bitcoin will appreciate. Right? Exactly. So correct. Now guys, I, let's focus on what Joe said. I agree with everything he said, and I just want to make sure I am not embellishing what he said 
If they own too many bonds, he wouldn't buy more, I think is what you said. I think you feel that there's too many people out there that still own too many bonds. Is that, did I misinterpret what yeah. you said, Joe? No, you're, you're exactly okay. right. Okay. So yeah. again, yours is an insurance position. It's almost a upside down trade, I would call it. Yeah. You are upside down on your trade to hedge a Bitcoin exposure that I prefer not to take as big a Bitcoin exposure, but I have therefore zero exposure in bonds because we're talking the same language there. I don't I have a job. AC- I'm working, unfortunately, you know, that's yeah. the thing. Like, yeah. And that, that so is something I wanted to highlight. You two, the two of you, you're both successful in your spheres. You're at different stages in your career. You're going to have different allocation sizes. You know what I mean? Right. Okay. Could Greg, I you had, a, you had an incredibly successful to... career. You're phasing out. You know, Joe, you're in the middle of your career. Your cash flow right. is flush and probably going to increase. You know what I mean? If if I may, ahead, may just finish, okay, because this is key. Bonds still don't offer the upside return potential that I'm looking for for an outright investment. If it's a hedge in an Armageddon scenario that Joe's talking about, Man, there's going to be a lot of pain in every asset class. I'll agree with that. My biggest hope, and it is still hope, that there's a decoupling where people do the math and realize that Bitcoin actually is an anti-fiat. And maybe this is a good segue for the next conversation on Bitcoin if you want to take it there. But I'm going to still go on Joe and, and rely on what Joe said because it's my feeling as well. I would not be increasing bond exposure here if you have a 60-40 portfolio, 60% equities, 40% bonds, just because bonds are now cheaper than they have been and finally got to a yield where there is a semblance of a return that's greater than 1.5% annualized, it's not enough for me because the last time CPI was at this level, 8% was when I was started trading in the 1980s and guess where interest rates were, okay? They were double digits. This is the difference between then and now. And a 3% yield, 3.63% yield, when CPI is still 8%, that doesn't cut it by me. I need to see the information change and see this deflationary environment come to fruition before I get bullish on bonds. I think Joe and I are saying exactly the same thing. Fair enough. Yeah. I wanted to chime in on the Tina thing. We love Tina. um, And it's (laughs) hilarious to watch people pile on him. You got people living in their parents' basement, you know, ripping Tina. He's probably got literally 500,000 times more Bitcoin. The point is though, if you have, if you have a hundred percent Bitcoin without in very strong and incredibly reliable cash flow, you are going to get, you have the potential to get fucking wrecked. And People need to be careful. Whereas bullish on Bitcoin is anyone in the world, right? Tina was very belligerent for other people that were selling their Bitcoin at higher prices. That's what his biggest, you know, the biggest comeback on him was. That's fine. I think that he's a big boy. And to his credit, he didn't escape from the space. He didn't give up his name. You know, like that's fine. He has the He's humility to be team. honest too. He made a mistake. That is fine. Right? I mean, he made a mistake. Oh, no, and he I, makes mistakes. Yeah. Joe, and I make didn't mistakes. have to say that. I have made, if, if I, out of 10, out of 10 trades, I make at least four mistakes. Okay. Probably close to five. The difference is managing your mistakes and letting your winners ride where most people sell their winners and keep their losers and compound their mistakes. At least Tina saw the information change, saw his 
chemical makeup changing where he couldn't sleep at night. He had a fiduciary responsibility to his family not to lose all his wealth in an asset class that we've seen. It feels so good when it's going up, but man, oh man, does it ever leave marks when it goes down, right? So hats off to Tina, hats off to people who change their portfolio when the information changes. The people that don't change their portfolio when the information changes, they call themselves Peter Schiff and they keep beating a drum. (laughs) Oh, look, it went from 70,000 down to 20,000. See, I was right. No shifty, Pete. You said to people, never buy it at 10 bucks a Bitcoin. That is the problem. So let's, let's give a credit to Tina. Let's agree that Joe and I largely have the same view on bonds. The funny thing is, Joe, that you're so adamant about a position that's just only 4% of your portfolio, you could throw it back at me and say, Foss, you're so adamant about a position in Bitcoin that you're only advocating 4% of your portfolio or 5% of people's portfolio. The difference is most of the people I'm talking to, Joe, have zero exposure. Not the bit, not the followers on, on um, uh, Twitter, obviously. The people I hope to get into their uh, mind brain. Like the Canadian pension plan. I, I know, plans. Greg, but here's here's the thing, and this just comes from a difference of opinion. I know, you know, I counsel, I'm attorneys for people with big money that are putting money into Bitcoin space, companies, institutions, funds, et cetera, that have put big, but here's what I'm concerned about. At the end of the day, they've got a lot of money. They've got a lot of capital. And sure, their P&Ls may take a hit. They may get, get you know, uh, have a rough year investing-wise. But I know other people that literally took out student loan money last year and in 2020 to buy Absolutely Bitcoin. Absolutely wrong. And Absolutely they're going to get. Wrong. I, I worry for those people. Okay, so when you talk about my emphasis on it, the reason I'm emphasis emphasizing yeah. this, and we're on the Blue Collar Bitcoin podcast, is because I know a guy who's a laborer. Okay, one of my good friends, and he says my entire net worth is in Bitcoin, and it's only twenty thousand dollars, and that. That really scares the hell out of me. Who and, gave and him I'm that worried advice, that. though? Was he able to do it himself? Not me. Because I, I don't. Uh, you know that I've never publicly allocated more than five percent. Although I I'm not, hold this more is not myself. about you. No, I'm this just is not saying, about but, you. So I, here's here's the crazy thing. Like, but here I'll I'll play a flip side of a. If you've only got twenty thousand, Joe, you don't have enough money anyway. You might as well put it all on black. I. This is not what I'm advocating, but there's people that live like that, right? And you're never going to get that, that out of their system. I think it's ridiculous. I don't do it myself. But these people that do say that they're 100% exposed to Bitcoin, I, I never want to ask them what their true exposure is in dollar terms, nor is it my business. But my, my thought process would be they're putting it all on black. And I actually believe it's a better than 50-50 chance all on black versus all on red. I think it's better than 50-50 chance that it's actually a good long-term trade in Bitcoin. The difference is the market's telling me I'm wrong right now. And the most important thing is they don't know how to manage risk if it does come to fruition. What they'll probably do is not even sell any when it reaches a price that they need to be taking chips off the off the table. They'll be they saying, ah, oh, no, they I'm going to let it ride. I'm going to let it ride. No, I'm you know what they'll do? Ride. They won't even, they will, you know what they'll do? They'll do what certain people that will be un, not named uh, told them to do last year, which is to take out loans on their house and buy Bitcoin with it and get leverage to buy Bitcoin, which I think is completely ridiculous and not responsible well, in any way. And we don't speak up enough about that. And I'm trying to sound the alarm here, not to be a, you know, somebody that's the sky's falling, but be responsible. 
We're heading into a very challenging economic environment. I know you realize that. It's not it's it's not all rosy. There are storm I've never clouds been on the more horizon. Scared. This is the this is the most scared I've been managing money, even though it's only my own right now, than I have been since 2007, right before the subprime mortgage crash. Okay. The credit markets were flashing all sorts of orange and red. And the equity markets were whistling by the graveyard. Now the equity markets have largely caught up this time. But the difference is the leg down, potential leg down, is not protected because right now it's the Fed fighting interest or, or rising interest rates into a recession. So there's no buffer. There is no flight to quality or flight to safety, rather, because that bid has or that uh, position is also down double digits this year in the form of bonds. I hope. There is no Armageddon scenario, Joe. I really do. You've heard me say that. We're not ready. The world's not ready. We need to de help develop this parallel network so that ultimately, as you say, it dies a slow death or even better. Yes. It doesn't die a death. Fiat money is good for global trade. It's just not good for a store of value. And you have a parallel network that is your savings account called Bitcoin, and you have your checking account, which is fiat money. And therefore, you have still healthy global international trade. That's my view. It's a It's a network transfer that is orderly over a period of time, not driven by a financial calamity orchestrated by the Fed. If I may, the last time you and I talked, you were not quite as negative on the economy. Is that fair? You were sort of because more bullish on the economy. I'm negative on next year. In this entire year, you've got you've got nothing but people saying the collapse is here, the collapse is here. You, you're clipping along a 2.4 percent real GDP in, in, per Atlanta Fed. Now you've got a labor market that's historically tight. You've got all you've got. I think the the conditions for a recession have been set already for next year. The Fed, well, if, you, if you listen to the Fed's rhetoric. If you listen to the Fed's rhetoric, they have all, all but abandoned the softish landing. Now what they say is they say they use language, which is really telling in Fed speak. They say we're, we're on a narrow path to a softish landing, right? <laughs> which is basically a concession. Look at their, the well, summary of economic projections. The summary of economic projections that they put out basically says growth next year on a real basis is going to be 0.0. .0. That is the closest you're going to get to an admission that there's well, a recession next year. Okay, fair enough. And here's the chance. What's the chance of that coming true? Look at yesterday's uh, ISM manufacturing for, uh, for manufacturing, ISM for manufacturing. Uh, yesterday, employment was under 50. Okay, that shows manufacturing employment contraction. These are some of the reasons that I think that the Fed does not get to its four and a half percent target from its current level of three and a quarter percent. We could talk about what defines a pivot and everything like that. The market is just looking for some sort of indication that the Fed is taking their foot off of the accelerator in terms of these interest rate increases. You'll see the Dixie come off. You've already seen it come off a little bit. All of this leads to the potential, in my opinion, the potential, Joe, that that 0, 0.0 comes to fruition. My biggest concern is it's too late. And already there's too much pressure on housing prices in the UK. 30% of the housing market is got variable rate mortgages. Housing prices are collapsing. Net worth of families is collapsing. Who knows what happens? But I 
have never been more scared in terms of the potential breakup in the system right now. And here's where you should be prepared right here. Here's where you should be prepared because the market, in my, my opinion, and this is why I've been pounding the table on this, you will see signs of disinflation. You'll see CPI start to decline. That's not to be celebrated. You'll see rates, particularly at the long end, you'll see those start to come down. That's not to be celebrated. That tells you that there's dark clouds on the horizon. And that's why I'm looking at the bond market, because I think the bond market's going to sniff out these disinflationary forces before any other market. Everything else, the stock market, Bitcoin, they're all derivatives of the credit market. They're all derivatives. So you it think we're going to invert significantly or, or more so pre, pre the, pre-recession? Well, the, the ten year, the ten and twos have been inverted. You know, the whole summer effectively, right? And the key thing, you, I think, the I was looking really closely. The, all the original research looks at the ten year and the three month. That is ne- not yet still inverted. I think it does invert probably after the next hike. I think you know, Fed funds will invert the ten year. I expect that to happen later in this year. Fed funds will invert. I mean, I think we're at like a hundred bip spread <clears throat> at this point. Uh, you'll get that. So, I mean, you, you'll see warning signs. I, I've been, well, Greg's right. I have been more, I've been surprised at how well the economy has actually held up this year. I think that most people would. I mean, Luke Roman, uh, we talked about him earlier. He said the Fed was going to do one hike and be done. And then he revised it and said they were going to finish hikes in September. They still have shown no indication whatsoever they're going to slow down. Nothing. Then that's dangerous. Let's talk about how this is going to, let's talk really quick about how this is going to affect Bitcoin. And uh, I mean, it, Assuming you're right, Joe, and you, you guys seem to both agree that there's storm clouds on the horizon for next year, where's a very likely to be a severe recession. Bitcoin is very likely to get absolutely decimated in that to, I mean, there, it's hard to say what kind of number it would be, but it's probably going to be significantly lower than where we're at now if that does come to fruition. How are you guys approaching that situation? Are you just looking to have dry powder available to be keep just keep dollar cost averaging on the lows here? And then what would be your suspected turnaround time? Do you think this will keep moving along this four-year cycle the way we've seen in the past? Or do you think these macroeconomic wins are going to be enough to change that entire trajectory for Bitcoin? So could I go first, Joe? Go just first. so that, yeah, thanks. Just to, so here's the thing. The, the Bitcoin market, in my opinion, has weathered some already severe storms just within the, uh, in the digital asset ecosystem that, was quite impressive, okay? In the absence of concern about what the Fed was doing, this UST Terra, you know, US, uh, uh, so Luna, US Terra uh, collapse was just an absolute shambles. The Celsius and all the over leveraging within the digital assets ecosystem. TikTok next block, yeah, the price came down from 70,000. There's no question it never would, it would never have gotten up to 70,000 if it wasn't for the Luna Terra buying. And then when they had to unravel that whole thing, it got down to around 30,000 and there was a lot of pain in the markets. But I was impressed with the resiliency of the bid and the ability for the markets to work their own problems out without a backstop. Okay, that is a mark of a maturing asset class. I still have a belief that because of the decimation in bonds as well as equities this last six months, There are institutions that are doing their homework. There are countries that are doing their homework to get a larger allocation to Bitcoin. Whether or not I'm right will play out over a a period of how bad the decimation in the other assets are. But I'm not smart enough to tell you whether Bitcoin should trade at 20,000 or 10,000 right now. And quite honestly, I don't care. 
I'm set up for a different type of trade as I try to lay out over a 20-year time frame for this asset class, not for bonds, because it's only 14 years old, coming up just on 14 years old. And there's no way you can make these decisions based on historical data. They don't exist. So you have yeah, to... And you have to plan for both outcomes, fellas. And that's why I'm not 100% exposed. And that's why I have taken profits because I also bought in at a price of a thousand bucks. Well, the truth is this, Bitcoin's a better risk, a risk uh, asset right now, risk return opportunity right now than it was at a thousand bucks in 2016. Why? Because we've, we've seen the response due to COVID. And we've seen the debt and the global money printing, $9 trillion of global money printing that has impacts. Joe said it's not a CPI hedge, and that's correct. What Bitcoin is, is a monetary inflation hedge. Monetary inflation hey. is required to solve this debt spiral, pure and simple. Go ahead, guys. I finished. I just want to make one comment. We're, we've spent some time here the last few minutes talking about the, the potential likelihood that price goes down. All four of us agree this asset is insanely unique. It's marvelous. It's got a plethora of use cases and value propositions, and it doesn't take very many large buyers for there to be a significant risk of sitting on the sideline. So I think we would all agree that too, that this thing could has the potential at some point in the future, whether that's tomorrow or 12 years from now, to go in a direction to the upside that could really surprise. So there is a risk yeah. on the other side of sitting on Always. the sideline. You need to get Correct. a seat in the chairs before the music stops. Right, Dan. And, and, and I don't know if you've uh, listened to the last podcast, The Hardest Trade 2 with Tina. That I, I have, did, yeah. I've thought about this for since 2015 when I started buying Bitcoin that you know my, my view is I want to be able to go to bed at night, <laughs> put my head against a pillow, and be prepared for to wake up tomorrow and Bitcoin to be five hundred thousand dollars, and not and and it'll be great. It'll be wonderful, you know. Uh, hopefully, that's a good place the world's in as well. Or I want to be able to go to bed and wake up tomorrow and Bitcoin to be five thousand dollars, and I'm not going to want to jump off a building. Either one, I'm prepared for the eventuality. But let me go back to where you know where this this all goes, and I think that the most challenging aspect of this environment, um, you know, as as Stanley Druckermiller said, is that you've never had these sort of inflationary CPI dynamics that we're currently uh, struggling with. The, even the 1970s is not really a good analog because of uh, issues with the labor market and debt levels are totally different. So to me, in the next you know three to five years, the prospect of Bitcoin and its price appreciation, in my mind, is contingent on the Fed uh, being able to get back to the business and the central bankers getting back to their regular and orderly course of business, which is debasement which is fiscal stimulus, which is having to drive forward and pull forward growth. Because if they can't, and you're headed for a structurally higher inflation, I'm not talking about you know 3%, maybe it runs a little bit over the, the last 10 years at two, maybe you're running 3%, that's fine. They can deal with that, they can debase, they can print, they can stimulate, they can do UBI, they can do all these things. But if you're running at 6.5% or 7%, those elevated numbers, I think every asset takes it on the teeth. And I think that the risk premium of all these assets changes when you can go get treasury paper north of five or 6%. So I hope, and it's more of a hope than anything else. I hope these, these rates come back down because if they don't, the whole game's different. 
and, and Greg knows this, the risk premium for the stock, I mean, the stock market is historically overvalued if you're going to have treasury paper north of 5%. It just is, just the reality. Of <laughs> oh, yeah, it. I agree and 100%. So, 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 if, so it's kind of two paths. Either you have a reversion to the mean and you have these rates come down, and I expect Bitcoin to do wildly well because that lets the central bankers and other fiscal authorities go back to their old tricks and develop all new uh, ways to pull forward consumption and deficit spending, and et cetera. Or if you're in an inflationary decade that's really uncontrollable and resource shortages, uh, you know, you're, it's going to be rough for any investor. I mean, Druckenmiller, again, I'll reference him. He just said that he thinks the return for stocks uh, could be pathetic uh, for the last next ten years. I agree. He'd say, yeah, "I well, I shouldn't say I agree. I agree. I heard him say that. I also agree. I heard him focus on the U.S. debt spiral. That said, Joe Kernan, the co-host of CNBC, said, "Well, we'll all be dead," and that was a sort of laughter. And like that is an irresponsible uh, answer. You know, okay, well, we don't have to worry about it. Our kids have to worry about it, and that's what makes me sick. And I think you would agree with that, Joe, is that we're leaving a debt burden to our children that is absolutely mathematically impossible to solve, with the exception of Luke Groman's out, which is yield curve control and inflation of the tax base, the growth of GDP because of inflation. It's painful for a lot of assets. All, all paths lead to Bitcoin. I, I, if I can, one thing, you know what, you and I don't agree on my evaluation of Bitcoin as an insurance using CDS on the USA. That's cool. I just want to call out people that, that have given me, uh, I love this, uh, uh, type of analysis, including a tweet I sent to you guys, uh, Dan and Josh of that, uh, guy who admitted he was a math nerd. And he also admitted he hated Bitcoin, even though he owned it for his asymmetry to the upside, he goes, I love this analysis using credit default swap spreads to value, to give an intrinsic value of Bitcoin. Now, I'm proud of that, Joe. I don't ask you to agree with it. I'm just proud that I get people like Robert Breedlove and Jeff, Dr. Jeff, who come out and say, hey, this is another valuation model in the ability to put an intrinsic value on Bitcoin. Okay. But how, but how do he you said, even but, unpack uh, that, Greg? Greg, hang on a second. Let's just but you take the market cap of an asset and you say yep. that this is this will this will pay off. I mean, you know CDS, you know how CDS works. It works in the event of, of a triggering event, an event of a default, it's gonna pay out. What is your baseline assumption that in the event of the US or any other sovereign defaulting, they're gonna rush towards Bitcoin in that sort of doomsday scenario? What what evidence what is other there? What other choice? Well, there isn't any except what where else would you go when all fiats are breaking down? Apple like Apple computer, Apple stock. I mean, it's, uh, it's, I, listen, Apple price, has a market. I mean, it, imagine it, your, fair. your analysis. It's a, harder, it's a harder asset than a bond. So I would agree with that. And that's something that Santiago, uh, you know, uh, Brett Johnson agrees with as well. He thinks that blue chip equities will be the next recipient of a lot of this. I, I am not going to say that I'm 100% certain of it, Joe. And this is the key. But I'm more certain than 1%, which is essentially the odds the market's giving me. And that's how I manage risk, okay? I like to say, what is an expected value distribution of outcomes? I think Bitcoin is a one of the recipients of this flow away from the traditional assets that aren't working in that type of uh, uh, outcome. So... All I would say is this, Fidelity has a model that thinks Bitcoin gets to 2000, excuse me, gets to a million dollars US per Bitcoin 
using an adoption model that they compared it to cell phones and to the internet. I'm sure you guys have seen that, right? It's pretty good research. And they come to a US dollar, $1 million price for Bitcoin by 2030. Then we had the infamous plan B, you know, debunked potentially or whatever, but it was a model that was embraced at one point. I'm not saying my model's the be all and end all. I'm just trying to get it how I think about it, Joe, into the minds of others. No, but I Greg, don't you don't you don't know the denominator. You don't know the denominator, which is the growth of the money supply. You don't know it. I mean, if you're going to do any of these models, well, I don't care. They're all well. Product. I can in use it opinion, in today's dollars. They, I see it in today's dollars. Which right. That's what nothing. I'm basing it on in today's they dollars. They don't tell you the U.S. debt. Though no, the U.S. debt today, I base it on U.S. debt of a of a close to 200 trillion total funded plus okay. unfunded and, debt and, in the U.S.A. And, and, Structurally, this is just an honest disagreement, and I respect your opinion. I don't, I don't think it makes sense because the debt markets, when someone, when you liquidate those bonds, okay, those treasury bonds, somebody gets cash, and who, who gets the bonds? Who holds the bonds? Who I guess the them? buyer. Well, the buyer, right? The buyer, the buyer holds the bonds. Whoever buy it, whether it's a central bank or another, yeah, yeah. The cash yeah. doesn't. There, for every buyer, there's a people, seller, right? We can agree in basic markets. That's right. So, so to take yeah. the debt market and to say this just flows into when when there are structural and legal reasons why that cannot no, but occur. I'm using an, I'm, cannot no, I'm occur. not saying it flows there. I'm not saying it flows there. I'm saying you're taking an insurance premium that's calculated in open market daily price movements from buyers and sellers of default protection. I'm taking that rate and I'm applying it as a percentage of the outstanding debt burden of the United States in today's yeah, dollars. But the, the, the problem is you could take that and apply it to Ethereum. And none of us think Ethereum is going to be CDS for, for sovereigns defaulting, right? You no, could take Ethereum the market cap fiat. of Ethereum and Ethereum say- Ethereum is fiat. I, this is based on the fact that Bitcoin is the anti-fiat. That's the key. If you don't agree with that, then I'll- Grant you, you but don't the, have but to. Majority to of the my world thesis. does not agree with that right now. That's the I, uh, because majority. they haven't done the work that you that perhaps you and I have done, and you disagree that it's anti-fiat. But I absolutely no, think I of Bitcoin. Hey, hold, as, hold on, hold on, oh, that's not fair. I don't disagree. It's anti-fiat. Okay, then I disagree. Then, okay, I, I disagree to that, that. I think it's a false assumption to tell people right now in the market if the U.S. defaults and you put again, this goes back to people saying, "Oh, it's a hedge against CPI." If the U.S. were to default again tomorrow. To suggest to people that that would pay off and be insurance for Bitcoin, I'd think you'd see Bitcoin at a thousand bucks a coin in that environment if the U.S. is defaulting tomorrow. I think I'm not trying to say that I'm trying to give it an intrinsic value. I guess here's the thing. I don't expect the U.S. to default, but there is at least a premium that's being paid by people in the market that want that protection. That's the beauty of an open market insurance premium called CDS. Now, why does it trade there? Largely because Italy trades a lot wider, largely because Canada trades a lot wider, and there's a correlation impact, a contagion impact amongst the sovereign debt of the world. Let's just... But but Greg, do you you think, just to to put a cap on this, just do you think big money, big institutions, that they they go and put on risk and put on symmetric, you call it an asymmetric risk reward, the best one you've ever seen, do you think they go to the market and they say, we're gonna put chips on something that has never happened before and that would be a doomsday scenario, which is the U.S. default. You think that's a persuasive? Well, not I, the U.S. I was talking Again, to Bitcoin. I, I, I guess I try to, sorry to uh, jump on you, but it's not Bitcoin defaulting. Excuse me, uh, USA defaulting. It's actually the 100 and other 80 fee. It's the money that's managed in these other countries that need it more than the USA. 
Now, this is the key, right? These countries but your calculation is using U.S. CDSs. I, your I only, is- if you read the tweet, it said you're getting, you're paying this on the USA and you're getting all other fiats for free. It was my way of trying to simplify rather than saying, let's add up all the other fiats and get an intrinsic value and forget about the USA. I'm Fair just enough. saying there's a market out there for the USA and both of us agree that it's de minimis but on $200 trillion worth of debt. So the point is this, I don't do it on the USA as much as saying, guys, you're getting it on all other countries in the world for free, for free. My God, it's so beautiful. Anyway, guys, it's late. I will tell you one thing, and I'm going to give the last word to Joe. He's been a true gentleman in this conversation. I respect all of everybody's view. That's what makes a market, right? We have to sit and understand that markets are made of a buyer or seller. The echo chamber of the Bitcoin community sometimes get overwhelming. I'll agree with that. Joe and I have had our differences. Joe and I have had our differences, but I respect the fact that he came on here as a gentleman. I want to thank you, Joe. I want to thank you, blue collar Bitcoiners for putting this on. If anybody learned anything, I'm confident I learned Joe's position better. He's smart doing it in the options market on bonds. The funny thing is we're inverted. His trade in bonds is my trade in Bitcoin, essentially. And we're trying to accomplish the same thing because his weighting in Bitcoin is too high for me. I can't get to that level. So I'm doing it in a different way. Hats off to everybody who manages risk properly. Okay. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Do the math. Extend your time frame, most importantly. This debt spiral cannot continue. That I know for sure. When it ends, give a target, but never a time. Right, Joe? Give a target, but never a time. (laughs) That's the best way to manage money. They can't pin you down by saying, okay, well, you said your target was this. And I said, yeah, it's still my target. I never said when it was going to get there. This is the key. We are living in the next 90 days, I think is going to be crucial, absolutely crucial to a viewpoint as to where the world will be for the next decade. If the U.S. does not give in, if they stick to their guns and Powell sticks to his guns and raises Fed funds to four and a half percent, another 125 basis points, I don't even want to think of the calamity that the world's in at that point. No asset is safe. That is true. I'm still holding my viewpoint that there are smart enough people, including the fact that the UN is now trying to get the Fed to change policy. I've never seen this. Never would I have ever thought that the UN, United Nations, would weigh in on Fed policy. But that's the world we live in. Last word to Joe, Josh, and Dan. Thank you again. I know for sure I should never have muted uh, my friend, uh, Joe, I'm going to unmute you, sir. And when I did block you, that was truly a fat finger. Okay. Please believe me when I did, I did block <laughs> Tina. I absolutely 100% blocked Tina because he and I actually went on, t- on, on texts, uh, back channels, we'll call it, but I did not mean to block <laughs> you. I meant to, you. Yeah. I meant to mute well, you. I meant to mute you. So I'll- I'm going to unmute you and I don't give a shit what other people think of me. I will always tell the truth as I see it. And I think you're the same person, Joe. And all we can do is tell the truth. There's not enough people telling the truth out there right now. This is a risky world we're living in. 
It has gotten us here by fiscal mis- fiscal and money monetary mismanagement. Hedge yourself against the Fed clown car. That's my best <laughs> advice. Thank you guys. Yeah. Oh, I'll just I'll just say I appreciate it, Greg. And I don't ever take an honest disagreement personally. I, I value your opinion. Even if we disagree, I think it's important to have healthy disagreement in the space, and, and, and we have to have these discussions. That that's key. That, we that's have key. To. So I appreciate you. I value your scholarship and your contribution to Bitcoin. I don't mean to undermine any of that. And there's nothing wrong with an honest disagreement, as you say. That makes a market. Um, I will just just conclude in, in terms of my my framework of how I I, I talk to a lot of. Um, I was going to get into this earlier. I talked to Fortune 50 companies about Bitcoin. Okay, I've tried to explain it to them in a very basic way, and I've tried. To, they, they've they've told me a lot of things and great insight about structural issues to them entering the market. Things like they can't liquidate hundred million dollar positions. Big insurers can't do that on a quick basis. That's a problem. We need to get this thing bigger. We need to get this thing in the multi trillions of dollars so that can provide that liquidity in a crisis. And I think Greg understands and agrees in that. My my only thing is this. Okay. I think there's a pervasive attitude, and this is not Greg at all, because he doesn't, he didn't come through on this. He agrees, you know, we need to kick the can down the road as long as possible to try to sustain this system so that we can have a smooth and orderly transition to Bitcoin. That's my hope too. But I think when we go out there and we talk about Bitcoin, and you guys, you do the best. I mean, you talk to people at the firehouse, right? Your regular guy. I don't think it's effective to go out and say that Bitcoin is, you know, it's going to help you in a doomsday scenario. I don't think that, I don't think people think about that. They're thinking about their kids. They're thinking about their family, church, you know, uh, extracurriculars. They're thinking about how do I have a decent retirement? Basic things. They don't like to think about the end of the world. You know, Greg and I can think about the end of the world. And we can go back onto our jobs and, and try to make money and do whatever else we need to do. But my point is that our messaging about this cannot be, in, in my opinion, respectfully. I don't think it should be like this is your protection against a calamity. I think you should look at this as saying the world is really messed up. We have a fundamentally broken system and it could drag on and die with a whimper and all roads lead to Bitcoin, as Greg says. But that can take a long time. It can yes. take 10, 20 years from now, right? That's it. So my, my only, I appreciate Greg coming on and talking. I appreciate our daily chats on Twitter spaces, wherever as he is, they may become. And I will tell you, I don't take it personally. I, I don't take any disagreement someone has on a genuine basis personally, even if I strongly do. And, you know, it's okay. You know, we're adults, right? We can curse back and forth with each other and then go have a beer. That's how things work, right? This is not, uh, you know, a safe space on Bitcoin Twitter. And I don't expect it to. Yeah. Yeah. We were insanely w- light profanity tonight. We were. Uh, <laughs> almost. It's kind of disappointing, Dan. <laughs> yeah, it is. No, but, but dude, my two yeah. high lifes are done. So we need to. Yeah, we, it's our cue. Right we there. greatly appreciate the two of you guys. Both of your insights are really helpful for the two of us, I know, and I think probably for all the people listening as well. And thank you guys for both being very courteous and professional to each other, not uh, you know swinging. Not sure exactly how far away the two of you guys are, but long, way too far for a fist. But maybe yeah, we can get no, that done. Even like a hockey too. fight, though, guys. Even like a hockey fight, we would have gone out for a beer afterwards, right? That's yeah, the, I mean, it's, it's, exactly. this is reminiscent of a firehouse dinner chat guys at each other's throats but when those tones drop and we we head out on the street we're all on the same team man and joe i couldn't agree more and i know you view it this way too greg you've got to escape your cacophony your filter bubble and the group think you have to have people you have to be seeking out perspectives different than yours and you have to keep people in your inner circle that disagree with you if you have nobody close to you nobody that you love and care for that see things differently, you're on the road to cultism, man. And uh, so, yeah, we we appreciate it. This has, these 
we got to create environments where people can, can sharpen knives together. So thanks boys. Thanks guys. Awesome. Thank you guys. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Have you guys on again. Have a great night. Thank you very much, everyone. Take care, Greg. Take care, Josh and Dan. See you, Joe. Thanks so much for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to like or subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts or on YouTube. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. We are also active on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC. And our email address is blue collar Bitcoin podcast at gmail.com. We invite questions, comments, or inquiries of any kind. We look forward to you joining us again on the BCB podcast. Thank <laughs> you.